I wanted to start by introduce. I wanted to start a little differently than the last episode, but introducing a concept that I think about a lot, which is cultural curation. As we walk around city streets and in our favorite places in New York, LA, San Francisco, Dallas, Chicago, and we walk into different stores or you're walking down a street and you think, wow, what a lovely neighborhood, what lovely people, that restaurant's so cool and interesting. Or the opposite, which is, damn, why did the city let in that nail salon, smoke shop? I'm fascinated by the people that are actually making those decisions and who is curating the, the world that we live in. So my guest today, we met years ago in 2013 when I was on the Warby Parker bus tour, driving a school bus at age 23 um, around the country. We stopped in Dallas. We met Mark Macinter, who is the owner of, and I'm going to do your intro really quick and then you can correct me, founder of Open Realty Advisors, one of the early investors in restoration hardware. He's a real estate investor. He's a tech investor or a startup investor. He is um, a real estate developer and many other things, I'm sure, but welcome to the show. Mark, I appreciate you being here. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and it's great to see you again. You don't look any different since yeah, well, the first time I saw you in Dallas, Texas on Henderson Avenue. Well, I just showed you a photo of us um, from there. I, I didn't have a beard. I mean, that was a, that was six years ago. You're still an incredibly handsome man. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, how Courtney, did, you as well. Yeah, Courtney's also very <laughs> handsome. How did you, uh, how did I do on your intro? What did I miss? No, I think, um, I think that's uh, a good intro. I would, I'm, I'm always proud to say I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, married a Texas girl who kept me in Texas and I have three babies from Texas Amazing. that are now grown babies. But I think, uh, I think you got the highlights right. When you describe yourself to people today, how, how much has that changed and, and what do you say now? Um, I would still say founder of Open Realty Advisors. Um, I would still say that I'm incredibly active uh, in real estate investing and development. And I'm still investing in companies. I would say the only difference, I think you said it, but neighborhood goods and being part of co-founding that with uh, Matt, Matt Alexander. Yeah, we're going to get to that. I'm yeah. excited. And that, that would probably describe my uh, my biz. Yeah. So so when when I visited in, in Dallas and I was uh, early 20s, I had no idea what I was doing. You took us out to dinner and I remember thinking, wow, this is a guy who he's a, a pillar in the Dallas community as well, which I thought was really interesting. You, you seemed like you were involved in a lot of things that were hyper local to Dallas as well as nationally with your, with your other businesses. But I thought that was really interesting. Talk a little bit about Dallas, what it means to you, why have you stayed so long and, and, and how it's changing. And that's going to lead into to Henderson yeah. and some of the things that you're working on, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it's um, really a good question. I, I didn't like Dallas at first. I, I went to Dallas First, because I went to school at SMU, um, I decided that's where I wanted to go to school. I thought long and hard about going to the University of Georgia, but I've always wanted to do things different. That's why I went to prep school in Connecticut, left a great social life and fun in Atlanta to go grind three hard years in, in an all-boys boarding school in Connecticut. And then I, instead of going back to Georgia, I went to Texas. And Dallas in the early 80s was a boomtown. And it was, I learned the real estate business while I was in college. I was lucky enough to land a job being a peon at Cushman and Wakefield. And I learned it from the bottom up. And so 
that's where my business roots grew. But I didn't necessarily see myself being in Dallas because what I loved about growing up in Atlanta is I felt like Atlanta as a Southern city had a real soul in an ethos. And there was already, I already could feel the creative stuff going on there. And Dallas to me felt very commercial. Plus I grew up hating the Cowboys. Me too. Just hating them. And it was a really interesting transition to go, okay, I'm going to stay here. And so that mentality or that perspective on Dallas being a little bit corporate, yeah, you know, has that evolved for you or, or was it part of that? Do you also think, okay, well, and this is probably a little bit after you were in the real estate world yeah. long enough where you understood sort of the implications of what it, what, what it means and what, what you can, how you can affect those things. But has that persisted and has that been something that you're trying to attack? And this is a, a not so subtle segue into, into the work you're doing currently on Henderson. But, but I think that's a, a really interesting idea of like, you know, right. Even when you were there in the eighties, you felt like it was very corporate and commercial. Has that been something that you're trying to attack? Big time, big time. Um, now I'm there and now I want to, I want to be a, a good citizen. And so I'm trying very hard on the real estate things that I'm doing to make a very positive impact on the communities in which we're doing things. Like real estate is a very, it can be a very commercial business, but if you attack it in a way, um, at least the way that I'm trying to do it, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping people go to places and visit places that where we're doing things where they come out of that having, wow, I just had a great time. I don't know who was, who did that, but they were really, but this restaurant was such a wonderful new experience or the public grounds here. It's just a nice place to hang out or that food hall was so thoughtful and I really enjoy taking my friends and family there. Yeah. These things really matter. They really matter. They really matter. Yeah. And and they're done poor. They're done so poorly so often. Mostly. Mostly. Yeah. And not that I'm saying I'm so great at this. Sure. What I've been fortunate to be able to do now is at least express my point of view. Yeah. And I'm crazy passionate about that. I don't want to be this commercial guy doing things to build and flip. It's just, it's not in my DNA. I wish it, I mean, I don't wish it was, I would probably have made more money along the way if I could, if I had the build and flip mentality, but I, I want to do things where 40, 30, 40, 50 years from now, a kid that grew up eating ice cream or getting a, grabbing a burger at one of our developments or buildings goes back there with his kids and say, God, this is so great. This is still here. And yeah. this building is now it's got some patina on it and it feels good. And yeah. Uh, you know. How do you reconcile that? So as a developer, I guess I'll just explain quickly. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your work on Henderson and Dallas, but yeah. how, as you're developing new space, how do you reconcile old versus new and, and how important is that? So obviously when big new developments go in, especially in, in sort of foot traffic, ideal retail areas, there are a lot of old institutional cultural hubs that live in these places. And you may not see them as cultural hubs, but other people may. And there's disagreements of what is relevant and what's good and what's bad. How do you reconcile that in your work as a developer? So um, that's a really good question. Because in a lot of things that we're doing right now, we're building new in old 
established neighborhoods. And the risk is that you end up doing something distasteful or really turns off the local cultural leaders that have really made these streets or districts what they are. And all of a sudden they go, look at this guy. He's an out-of-towner and he ruined the vibe of our street or our neighborhood. And so, look, we're finishing a project. I'm a partner in a project in Austin, Texas right now. It's called Music Lane and it's on South Congress Avenue. And there's a real heartbeat and soul, as you know, on that street. And so, to me, it's an enormous responsibility for me and the partners that I have to do something super thoughtful, not only from a design perspective, but from a curatorial perspective, so that once that thing is open, people go, hopefully go, you know, that was good work. You could tell they cared, and they brought entrepreneurs and brands to the street that will elevate the street and that people will embrace. Yeah, this is the this is the the risky um, and, and difficult side of real estate development. I think is you have to be willing to. It, it's it's the, the idea that people don't know what they want or enjoy until you give it to them, and people may throw go up and you know the Henderson Street that you're developing in Dallas. I've been there several times. You know, sure there are there are definitely elements that are historic and and relevant, but there's also long stretches of basically blight right um, that are not walkable and are not really being enjoyed by anybody. So you have to sort of be able to silence those, not silence them, listen to people, hear their feedback, but also just push forward on something that you believe they will appreciate down the line. And ultimately they do, hopefully. Yeah. That is the difficult thing is you have to sort of be able to power through and be like, look, when we get here, you're all going to benefit. People are going to benefit from this. And I don't think there's ever, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like there's ever an example of a time where somebody's developing a new thing and somebody's like, okay, I'll just trust you. They always think you're going to screw it up. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think the fear of screwing up is what drives me, is that I don't want to ever get that phone call. And so I try really, really hard to think through all of this, all those kind of issues. Because there's no going back, right? No, and if you take, you know, there's, Two, two things we're involved in in the Metroplex right now. There's the Henderson project, and then there's a project that um, I've been partners in and kind of led the whole curatorial and ground floor execution on. It's a project called Legacy West, and they're two totally different kinds of projects, but they, they both took a lot of thought and a lot of care. And to the communities that surround Legacy West, it's now become, I feel like it's now become like the town center. And that happened, that has to happen naturally and organically. You just can't kind of turn on a sign that says, welcome to your new town center. Yeah. It has can't to, buy culture. You can't. And, mm-hmm. and you have to continue to invest in that. Yeah. And that doesn't mean just investing money. It means investing your thoughts and yeah. your, and your, and, and, and just doing good. Yeah work time showing up showing up over and over and over again right where like henderson is like i i look at streets and i know you heard me say this a long time ago but abbott kenny was kind of my inspiration for what henderson could be dallas is ready for a district a street like abbott kenny and so but the the executing a street 
and a neighborhood that's totally intertwined is one thing and doing a kind of mixed use project like legacy west is another thing because in a lot of ways on henderson you are trying to design culture you're trying to design for culture to happen or at least to take place you're trying to create something that people can populate and build culture within that's very difficult you know abbott kenny's been developing over many many years and there's been tons of turnover and the street has been many different things but the the heart and soul of it has stayed relatively consistent over the last several years because people want to be there right um and i think that's probably a really difficult thing to build from the ground up well what's interesting is so the people that if, if you just drew a one mile ring around our development and our holdings on henderson avenue it's a very purposeful move why for people to live there they they live in that neighborhood for a reason and so what we're trying to do is not disrupt that vibe. We're trying to make sure that what we put there naturally fits with the ethos of that community. So we're just trying to fit. It's a very different approach than a lot of developers would take. It's the harder path. Yeah, longer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> if I decided, it would have probably been much easier if I decided to build grocery stores or convenience stores or, but it's just, this is, um, what you love. This is, this is my thing. Yeah. And I love it. It's really hard. It takes patience. Uh, it takes very patient capital partners, which I'm very fortunate to have, Yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I want to rewind a little bit talking about inflection points in our, in our lives that lead to all sorts of different things. I know that you got involved with restoration hardware at a pretty early stage. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you got involved with that business and what that led to. Yeah, that was um, that was my MBA. So I've I'm never one that can sit still, mentally or physically. I'm ADHD, always have been. And what I found early on when we started our real estate business is, um, and once we started to get some success that lots of brands were coming to us and saying, help us with a growth strategy. We're gonna go out and raise capital around this growth strategy you're gonna help create. And I was like, we're at where the rubber meets the road for this. Why don't we take advantage of this? And, but I, I wasn't classically educated in um, venture capital or capital markets. So I knew I didn't have the skill set to know how to properly underwrite investing in a company. So I went to a guy who I've gotten to know for a long time. His name is Marshall Payne. Uh, Marshall has been an incredible friend and a mentor. And I said, here's my thesis. I'm seeing all these companies. I think there's, there are certain ones, that I, the concepts I really believe in, I believe in the management team. They're out raising capital off of stuff that we're helping, ideas we're helping them develop. Can you help me do this? I think we have something here. And he said, sure, bring me some ideas. So one of the very first ones was restoration hardware. So this very special friend of mine called me one day, who's no longer alive. Uh, her name was Elise. And she said, I've been spending this some time with this guy named Steve Gordon. He's on to something and you'll love him. You got to meet him. And we met, we hit it off. I didn't know anything about venture capital. I didn't know any of the big names out there doing it. I was just full of piss and vinegar. And, and um, we met, he shared his idea with me. I said, okay. I think I can bring the capital to this deal. And I went and talked to Marshall and I said, met the guy, here's my thesis. 
Uh, and he goes, okay. So we dug in and then we, we, we quickly kind of organized uh, the first round of funding for uh, taking Restoration Harbor from kind of its small idea to the big idea. And So at that time, you had one large investor type mm-hmm. gentleman who was willing to fund this idea if you brought an interesting deal to the table. Right. And you had one, and you had your real estate business. Yeah. So you had credibility. One major, <laughs> theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. right? <laughs> right? One major source of inve- of investment and then one deal and you just paired them together like you've been doing it for a long time and that was restoration i mean that's yeah. you know if one of those doesn't happen then the whole thing doesn't happen so, so that seems like it was a pretty significant inflection point for you it was it was a major inflection point it was when i say it was my mba it was my mba because i got to really became you know a a partner with Steve Gordon and became a part of him building a management team and and watching him do that, be a part of it, be a thought partner of his, be involved in the capital markets activities and be part of those pitches. How quickly did it grow after that point? It, you know, God, I, I wish I can remember all the dates now, but it was the first company that I ever was a founding investor in that went all the way to IPO. So, and, and that was probably over a four to five year period, but we've stayed involved in the company s- since kind of the beginning, since it's, you know, it's now really evolved into what Gary Friedman's doing, which is just absolutely mind blowing. Unbelievable to watch. Yeah. Is Open Realty still doing the real estate for we, that business or did you for many years? So we've essentially done every RH door that's opened in North America to date. Like everything, the relationships are, are evolving. We're less involved than we have been in the past, probably less now than ever. I mean, it's one of the most relevant retail businesses of certainly of my lifetime. Look, I, I there's been a lot of fortunate things that have happened to me from Steve Gordon, the founder of Restoration Hardware, the impact he made on my business life and my personal life because all of these guys inevitably become like family to me, like brothers. And then Gary Friedman. Gary came in and really changed Restoration Hardware to RH. And people thought he was crazy. But you have to be so bold and so visionary and fearless to do what he did. And I and to be, be able to sit next to him and be a part of his team and be a part of all of these new stores. It's been amazing. I mean, there were so many people. There was many people that were... We had a lot of doubters when we did uh, the Three Arts building in Chicago. People were like, you're crazy. It's never going to work. When we decided to do meatpacking district for RH versus other parts of New York City, people were like, eh. The Boston location. I mean, these locations are uh, unlike any retail experience out there. Right. And they're incredibly ambitious. And they really, I think, defy and undermine in a lot of ways, sort of traditional retail norms. And they're so outrageously ambitious that they work. Well, I think that if you, in today's retail world, if you don't do those kind of things, people are going to come. You, you've got to, you've got, if, if, if this is not about shopping anymore, this is not about commerce uh, when you're opening stores. You, you're, you're putting yourself out there. And by the way, Warby Parker is an incredible example of that. They, every time Warby builds a store, there's, it's super thoughtful. 
you just you know when you walk into any Warby Parker store that there was a lot of thought and a lot of soul that's gone into it. And these manifestations is what's helped help them. The physical manifestations of Warby Parker is what's helped them, I think, build a hell of a business. Because people can you can walk into a Warby Parker, kind of look around really quickly, interact with a uh, one of their sales people, and you get it so quickly. Yeah, it slaps you in the face. It's just like, yeah, this feels good. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, these, yeah, totally. And if you think about going back to Gary Friedman, when you walk into an RH, it just feels so great. Every I mean, if I've heard it one time, I've heard it thousands of times now. People walk into an RH and they're like, I want to live here. And that's one of the geniuses of Gary. That's not easy to create. That is so hard to create. And it's very specific. You know, I think in retail, specificity is a sort of an unsung hero here. Like yeah. having a clear perspective and then articulating that and expressing that in, in a physical space is incredibly important it doesn't need it's not just about it being designed well or looking good it needs to be specific enough where people understand what's going on and you know what are the things in life that we love most they're things that are very specific we have visceral reactions to things whether we love them or hate them right you know and and i think that's a really compelling thing to think about when you think about retail is like how do we have a clear perspective right away consistently every time you may not love it but that's okay Right. You can shop somewhere else, you know. Nobody wants a pretty good anything. We all want we want to scratch a niche with that thing as best we can right. and then we want something else. And I think that's a, a something that those brands have done really really well. Un- unbelievably. If you if look, I talk about lucky breaks. How how lucky were we to be invited to be part of the Apple? Yeah, so let's get into it. So I want to make sure we we get this story um before we go into too much else because it's, it's really, really interesting. So tell me about Apple. How did you get involved? Um, and did, why do you think you got the initial phone call? Like why you, why you over somebody else? Okay. So, I mean, I'm, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a pretty funny, simple story that I'll try to make quick. So this is uh, spring break, I think 1999. I'm in Vail, Colorado. I'm skiing with my family. I'm on a chairlift with my son, Joe. My flip phone rings. And, you know, pick it up because... When the phone rings, you pick it up. Pick it up. Yep. And, you know, you got kids all over the totally. mountain or whatever. Yeah. Let's remember, it was a flip phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you take off your glove, you flip it open. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Not like this beautiful yeah, right, iPhone, right? Right, right. And essentially, the voice on the other line said, is this Mark Center?" And I said, yes. And they said, please hold for Steve Jobs. And I essentially said something incredibly inappropriate and hung up the phone. Because why would he call me? I don't know anything about anything he does other than I know he's brilliant. He's created an incredible company and I have a Mac computer. That was it. Five hours later, I'm driving with my family to Silverthorne, Colorado to go have dinner with some family there. And my flip phone rings again. It's Steve Gordon, founder of Restoration Hardware. And we talk literally every day. This was kind of was our thing. And in the middle of the conversation, he goes, Hey, you happen to hear from Steve jobs today. And of course, and I'm not going to say it over the airwaves, but I said something not appropriate. He's like, no man, he really called you. I'm like, why in the world would he call me? I mean, I know nothing. Yeah. He goes, he's got a good idea. And he came and visited me and saw what we did and how we did it. And I told him about you. 
He said, hopefully they'll call you back. <laughs> I said, okay. And uh, luckily we got a call back and we went out there and... So you went, to, you went out there to the office. Yeah. And you pitched him directly. I did. How'd that first pitch meeting go? Well, we met um, uh, Ron Johnson. It was like his first few days in Cupertino. I love Ron Johnson. Uh, miss interacting with him the way we used to. He's another genius and that we were fortunate to spend a lot of time with. And again, there's so many people that have impacted me. So, and he was one of them. So we had lunch with Ron and then go into Steve's conference room and we were well prepared and I think gave an amazing presentation. And there was one point and there were way too many bad words to use in this, but let's just say that he said, that's the worst effing presentation I've ever heard in my life. You've got to be effing kidding me. And that was, I've never heard that before. That was but we had a very combative kind of meeting. You went back at him. Of course. In the room, yeah. Of course. I mean, he said things to me like that. Yep. Candidly, I'm, uh, you know, I wanted to get up and punch him in the face. Yeah. Because I'm just, I'm not good at that. Yeah. But it was very combative. He said certain simple things after we kind of said, this is what we think a theoretical growth plan could be and how we would sequence, in, sequence stores based on what little knowledge we had at the time. And he said at one point, he goes, I'll never, ever put Apple in a mall. And I said, you'll never, ever get to the number of stores you want to get to then. And that just was a bomb that went off. And so there was a lot of back and forth there. He, he didn't like the, there were so many things he didn't like. He didn't like the fact that we didn't rely on science and a lot of analytics to drive our decisions. And uh, so that became a very colorful conversation. Our point, it's a tool but it doesn't point you to the right location. It's just a tool. And that's, and he's a very, his business is a very data driven business. And so we, we had an incredibly colorful exchange. And when we were done, he said, look, I wouldn't do this if I was you, but if you want to come back and represent, come try again. And that was how we left it. And so you went back again or no. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I wanted to go back for the fight of again. Of course. I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and honestly, we went back to the office. We huddled the team up and we was like, what would we... What would we change? What would we change? I mean, so we changed, I don't know, just a little bit because we rethought it, but it wasn't anything material. Yeah. So we flew back out to Cupertino, you know, a few weeks later, thinking that we were going to see Steve and get a whole nother Bruja. And, and we, then we ended up meeting with Ron and... Jim by the name of George Blankenship and a bunch of other folks and got it done. Wow. The guy was brilliant. I mean, the team that he hired, his commitment to the design ethos of Apple. I mean, I'm telling you, it it, it had to be 100% perfect or he wasn't going to do it. And so he was the first, Apple was the first retail brand where it was so, the decision was always design-centric first. And... um yeah, so to be part of our team being a part of, and my partner Johnny Siegel really has quarterbacked that from the very beginning. So he, he deserves on our team the credit for driving that. But it's just been awesome just to be a part of these things. Totally. And, I, and people like Ron, people like Steve Jobs, people like Mickey Drexler, people like Neil and Dave at um, Warby Parker, People like Gary Friedman and Steve Gordon, and I can name a bunch of others, but those are those are the guys that have made such an influence on me about now how I approach real estate and and design and buildings and 
Yeah, so so how it seems like you have been able to over your career jump from one highly impactful business and impressive entrepreneur to another. How do you protect against staying relevant competition strategically over the years? It seems like real estate is about as crowded an industry as there is. Yeah. There are brokers and brokerages that are far bigger than open realty. How have you maintained relevance over the years? Sort of, you know, those are very distinct sort of generational eras in retail, you know, pre-Apple, the restoration hardware evolution, Orby Parker, Bonobos, now Neighborhood Goods, which is a totally different thing, which we'll get into. And I can certainly nerd out about that with you as well. But these are all very distinct eras. What do you think the through line is for you that has made, is is it fully relationship based? Is it a willingness to take risk? Is it is it the fact that you've also been in, an investor? Is it the positioning? What are the things that have made you be able to stand alongside these people that you hold in such high regard? And I'm sure they do the same for you. And what what is that through line? Um, look, we're our advisory business is uh, compared. There's some obviously some humongous firms out there that do great work. Newmarks, CBREs, JLLs, Cushmans. They're all great. Um, and we do business with all of them. Our, our, our advisory business is so specialized and we're not a brokerage business. We're really, I would say we're the McKinsey. I look at McKinsey and Bain as the model for what we do advising emerging retail and restaurant and food and beverage companies. And with all of the, the clients that we've had, we ultimately become part of their team. We're a part of, we either are or part of their real estate department. And I think there's probably a lot of th- things that have helped us along the way. I mean, obviously, I think we're, we become students of their brands, and I think we understand their brands. And I think the other thing is because we also have invested in a lot of companies, we understand the economics, and therefore we understand the in- economic impact of a really good or bad decision. We are very thoughtful about these decisions, these recommendations, because these are humongous investments you're making every time you open a store. And a failure is a bad thing. And I think what's helped us along the way is our batting average is very good. We don't make mistakes. Now, not every store might be the greatest store ever because we've now done thousands of them, but we do not make mistakes. And that's an important thing. And I believe that these brands think of us as a thought partner, not just a bunch of real estate guys shucking real estate deals. that's very difficult to do to well, convince a business that you are a thought partner with them i mean i, I struggle we, we we i think about this a lot with with our work because ultimately much of the real estate landscape is you thought of as a tool right or thought of as a service to be positioned as an advisor and as a thought partner i think is a really challenging thing to to pull off it seems like that's probably at the core as well of being able to work with these businesses for such yeah. a long time. Well, I talk about Johnny Siegel, another partner, Steve Merkel. These guys, they care so much about our business. And I think that that's, besides being a thought partner, waking up every day and giving a shit is what really matters. And that's who we are. We care to the point, maybe we care too much, but that that's just who we are as people. Um, and that's what I'm really proud of is that I think what's, what is super visible to the clients of our firm, the investors in our firm, our partners, is that we really care. 
we don't look at these relationships in, as a transaction. Yes, we, at the end of the day, everybody's, the companies that we advise, they have to, their stores have to have great success. Sure. And yes, along the way, we have to make money too. But we believe that going all in with these companies is what helps us get new clients yep. and, and grow our business. I want to talk about sort of like where retail, where you see retail is today. Yeah. God, what a hot button pop culture issue retail has become in the last five years, 10 years. Yeah. There are more articles written about what's happening and retail is dead or it's changing. And What's your perspective on where retail is today and where do you see it headed? I I'm, I'm couldn't be more excited about uh, being part of the retail industry today. The brands that are getting in trouble today are the brands that didn't evolve. I mean, you can just see it. The brands that are succeeding today, they're doing something simple like delivering to what the customer wants. That's a very simple statement, but that's really the points of difference. So true. And, you know, going back to Warby Parker, the world didn't need another eyeglass company. People thought they were crazy. When I first heard the idea, I was like, that's crazy. But they people found their niche. Yeah, people don't know what they need until they have They don't know it. That's what, what they Steve don't know. Jobs was famous for. Right. We didn't need an iPhone or an iPod or anything until right. we had it. There are hundreds of new brands that have started over the last several years. And that's what tells you that retail's not dead. Mm -hmm. It's different. And things that are, make retail successful today are very different than a long time ago mm -hmm. or even five years ago. But I'm, I couldn't be more excited about it as a, as a real estate owner, as a investor in the retail space, as a real estate advisor. The opportunities are amazing. It's, it's harder. It's all a lot harder. Everything is, takes longer, is harder, but that's just where we are today. Um, harder because there's so much else. There's so much competition and there's so many new businesses or harder because customers are expecting different things and wanting different things. It, it depends on how I'm coming at it. If I'm coming at it as a real estate developer or investor, it's harder because the landscape of retailers growing has changed. People don't have to open stores anymore. That's a big shift. It's a big shift. So it used to be, if you're a mall owner, you would sit down with the Gap and the Limited and Victoria's Secret and American Eagle Outfitter and whatever, and you would just do deals. It was like sign them up for 30, 40 deals or more a year. It was just, that's what happened. Yeah. Those days are gone. And so, A, you better own, if you own real estate, you better own stuff that people want to be in because the substandard product or the B and C malls, if you're in that world, they're very tough. And so the hard part about that is just, there's just different kinds of brands growing and they're growing at a different pace and they don't ever have to open stores. Now, having said that, there's a few fairly famous now direct consumer brands that first thought they never had to open stores sure. or weren't. Warby early on, right? Yep. Everlane. Everlane. Fam famously. Right. And um, declared way, very publicly that they would never open a retail store. And by the way, Michael's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah. think about, uh, and I've gotten to know him, and I think he is creating something, again, so specific in an organic way, just like Neil and David and so many of the other guys I've mentioned. What, they, what these brands are finding is that presenting yourself 
physically is, is a great customer acquisition model. Yes. Because it gets to show them what you are. They get to touch, feel when they walk in your store and they go, wow, this is a really thoughtful design. It says something. Yes. Or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But they exactly. get to choose. So much easier said than done. Right. You know, and I, I say this a lot. Retail is not if you build it, they will come. You know, it's no moss. No moss. Like if you build it and you activate it and it's specific and well designed and intentional in the right location with the right partners or and, and just positioned correctly and it's messaged correctly, they will come. And right. they will come in droves. They will reward that effort. Right. What we see is if you work with a business that has a huge following this now these businesses are spending years building a brand and a following online first. Right. And then they go into retail only when their customers are sort of banging at their door saying, if you don't open a store, like I'm going to lose my mind. You know, you, you know, you think about Allbirds and, and Everlane and Warby Parker. These are all businesses that built significant followings online and the brand equity that they had established was yeah. so disproportionate to other businesses that they had to open stores. Right. They didn't have a choice, really. And when I was at Orby Parker, I was I was overseeing showrooms, stores within stores, which was our first expression of retail. Right. Which Royce um, Abrams, a friend of mine, started. And it was to the point where some of these locations were so full of people. And the retail experience was objectively poor. Um, there was not enough room. There, there were two, there's no way to create a good experience in the back of a small store when you're overloaded with people. So right. that really showed the, the business that we have to do that. Today, I see something a little bit different, and I'm curious as to your thoughts. There are examples like Allbirds that have that effect. However, there are also a lot of other examples of businesses that are opening stores hoping to generate that. They have not built that online yet, and they're hoping that they can do so with the expression of a store. Do you think that that's possible? What what do you think? Yeah, look, uh, another one that I would totally tip my hat to is... um, Emily Weiss is doing it, Glossier. Totally agree. And, and and again, it came organically. She created this thing her way. She did it her way. They're, they're now beginning to physically manifest in different ways. And I think it's incredibly accretive to what they're doing. But it all started with what how Emily started the business. I'm blown away by what she's done. And so I think it's just how she's done it is her way, and it's very, very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, It'll be fun, fun, fun to watch her and her team and what they're gonna totally. do. It's so specific. It's yeah. so unique to yeah. her. And and but they, again, they spent a, quite a long time building something really specific and clear off online first. Well, I think what they've done, and a lot of these other brands have done it well. The relationship is not a transaction. Yeah. No, it's a it's an experience. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about neighborhood goods a little bit. Yeah. What does it represent in the world of retail to start? And then how did the idea come about? Um, one of my uh, ways of taking care of my mind is I cycle. And, and I call it bike therapy. It's how I can go find headspace. And this is about late in 2016. And I decided I needed to go take a long ride. And it was an interesting time. So go back a few years. It was kind of a crash of a lot of things that were going on in my brain, my business brain. We were talking to some department stores about how we might suggest they evolve their business, which was interesting. We, either through our advisory business or our development business, we had lots of brands saying, we want to pop up, we want to pop up, we want to pop up. We were talking to other traditional brands that were thinking about new ways 
to acquire customers. These traditional great brands that they knew that they had to do something fresh and different. And on this bike ride, I just started thinking about it. The partner store world as we know it is forever changed. Yet you have all of these interesting and new brands that want to manifest themselves. But I believe that the pop-up thing is going to prove to be not a good thing. Totally agree with you. But at the same time, I believe that while people are saying that physical retail is dead, I believed at the time, at least it was my thesis, that it was actually more important than ever. And by the time I got off my bike, I, in my head, gone, somebody's got to create the next department store. Somebody's got to create the next Fred Siegel. And I just kind of said, well, why can't we be part of that? We're where the rubber meets the road. We see all these emerging brands. We know real estate. We know development. We understand the math on both sides. Within 30 minutes after that bike ride, I called Andy Dunn. And I love Andy. And I was like, hey, dude, you got a minute? I got to run an idea by you. He says, good time. I've actually got a few minutes. Let it rip. And I just kept going and going and going. And he says, that's a pretty good idea. So I thought about it some more. And then I called him back again. And he said two things on that call. He goes, I like how you've advanced your thoughts. He said, you got to quit Open Realty and do this. That was number one. And number two, he said, have you talked to Kirsten Green about this yet? And I said, Andy, number one, I would run this company into the ground. (laughs) There's no way. Yeah. I said, that much I do know. Yep. He says, but I'm going to go find somebody that I think can do this. I don't know who that is yet, but I am. And I'm going to kind of call Kirsten and... Tell her what I'm thinking about. Who is the managing partner of Forerunner Ventures, and they've they've invested in all of the brands we've talked about today, yep. or at least most of them, and are about as relevant in the venture capital community in this space as, as it gets today. Anyway, so, and yeah. she is an amazing, amazing, mm-hmm. amazing person. I mean, I, she's a dear friend. I'm inspired by what she does. I mean, she is she's awesome. She's really built an amazing business, and I have just so much respect for her besides as a friend, but just how she's gone about growing her business. So called Kirsten. She said, wow, that's pretty good idea. She goes, we've started to see a few of these things. She essentially said, you know, when you're ready, we got to, we got to do this together. I said, I'm not doing this without you. If you don't think this is a good idea, there's no chance that I'm going to pursue this. And she goes, I said, okay, I'll come back to you. So I went on this journey. And there was this guy I had heard about. And so literally, February of 2017, I sent Matt an email. The reason I reached out to him is he had been doing this kind of seasonal pop-up department store business, if you will, kind of like a, a Brooklyn Flea or a, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, in Dallas. And so he had kind of started to build a reputation around that. And I, I, I was inspired by what he was doing. I thought he was doing something really cool and different. And your thesis to him was what, and, and, and what is it today? Uh, the thesis to him was, I believe that there's a place for a new department store. An old concept expressed and executed in a whole different way. Because what I was, and talking to all of these brands as I was already talking to them, none of them wanted to go into a traditional department store with those traditional kind of relationships with those traditional adjacencies and those traditional economics. They were screaming for something different and just nobody was listening. And so the thesis was create a real fun and playful 
department store mm-hmm. with different economics and different kinds of relationships and all kinds of things that would make the relationship such a win-win, not focused on exclusives. And hey, if it's not working out, leave. <laughs> you know? Right. Working with primarily digital first businesses. Yeah. So, so the idea was digital first because and these were kind of my ideas that evolved when Matt got involved and he brought some intelligence to it. But it was create the opportunity for these brands where they weren't investing these crazy amount of money to doing these pop-ups that don't, they're so expensive. So create this environment that was accretive to them that was going to be on brand and be a really great storyteller alongside of them. Yeah. And do something fun and playful, which is the exact opposite of a traditional department store. Yep. No knock on sure. the department stores. It was just, it was. It's a new era. It it's was a different just, era. It's just different. And and Fred Siegel, the original Fred Siegel was my muse. That to me was just such a brilliant business. And I used every, almost every time I'd go to California when I was growing my real estate business, I would always try to pop into the, really more of the Santa Monica store than the Melrose store because it just, there was something about it. There yeah. was something super authentic. Yeah, there it, was. They had a, whether you liked their point of view or not, they had one. That's exactly right. He got it. I mean, Matt's a brilliant guy. And um, now he operates the business Matt is, day to day. Matt is the CEO. He's the CEO. You know, he came up with the name Neighborhood Goods. I, I was giving him cues to what I was thinking about. I want this to like fit in neighborhoods. But so Matt took kind of that and he, and he goes, I think I got a good name. And it was Neighborhood Goods. It's kind of the combination of a lot of the points we've hit today in the conversation, which is like inflection points, mm-hmm. which was one. And this is clearly going to be a new inflection point in your career and, and in Matt's career and, and in the world of retail. Um, how do you protect against competition? What's How do you stay relevant? How do you continue to work with the best businesses? This is also a way of doing that. This right. is also furthering the retail conversation. You know, also a willingness to take risk and do things that are new. It's like evolve or die. And this is right. a new evolution. Right. I'm really excited to see. I know you're opening in Chelsea Market. Right. Which is really exciting. Really exciting. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's hey, man. insanity awesome. go, leading into a new launch. So thanks for taking the time. Oh, I appreciate it. So great to see you, man. Yeah, Thank you. you. Too. Yeah, Thank we'll have, you. We'll have you back in a few years. Or, Can't wait. Or whenever. Okay. okay. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks.